0: Good evening. Thanks, thanks for coming. Uh, my name is Charlie Heller, and uh, I'm here to talk to you about uh, about my book, my memoir called uh, Prague: My Long Journey Home. And I'm going to use a little uh, as as background, uh, use a use a PowerPoint uh, presentation. I'll just I'll just talk, uh, kind of give you the give you the background behind the book and what's what's in the book, and then. We just have a Q and A session for as long as you would like, and we have we, we we have books in the back for those of you who might be interested, and I'll be be signing them uh, later on. Um, as soon as I figure out. Just as background, uh, I was uh, I was born three years before the Nazi occupation in uh, in what was then Czechoslovakia. The uh, portion that you see outlined in, or highlighted in red here is actually the Czech Republic. As you probably know, Czechoslovakia split in 1993 into the Czech Republic and Slovakia. So I come from the Czech Republic side, which is where Prague is. And uh, Czechs like to call their country the, the heart of Europe, and you can, see, you can see why. It's pretty much the geographic center uh, of Europe. And more specifically... On this map, if you uh, if, if you look at the the map of the Czech Republic, uh, I was born in Prague, but uh, brought up in a small village about 11 kilometers north of Prague. So as you as you look at this picture, that rectangle, if you look at the upper right hand corner, this that's approximately where where our uh, small village was located, uh, called Koetice. By the way, have any of you read the book? Warren, I <laughs> okay. So let me just let me just kind of talk you talk you through how how things happened and and what happened, and also show you a few photographs that are that are pertinent. Uh, I come from a, I'm I'm kind of the intersection of uh, two families joining together: the Heller family, my father's side, of course, and my mother's side, which was the Neumann family. And uh, we, uh, my great-grandfather, whom you see here in this picture, whose name was Gustav Neumann, uh, was a real entrepreneur, although he probably never heard the word entrepreneur uh, back in 1910. Uh, he started a tiny general store where he sold things like aprons and brooms and uh, sold uh, rolls to people when they came out of church and, and so forth and eventually he became uh he, he was the first importer of singer sewing machines into Czechoslovakia between uh, uh before World War 1 or or uh, I'm sorry right after World War 1 uh, in around 1922 or so and from that uh he 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 imported se- singer sewing machines and he actually kept some of them and he uh had seamstresses uh, out and who who started working for him out of their own homes sewing uh, uh, women's uh, women's uh, dresses and men's work clothes, and from that, my great grandfather built the largest manufacturer of women's dre- women's clothes and men's work clothes in in, the, in entire Central Europe, and so what you see in that picture that's uh, uh, that is his factory which he which he started. And where you see his name Gustav, and see the window up above it, that was actually our apartment. My father uh, met my mother. My mother was uh, Gustav Neumann was my mother's grandfather, and uh, she met my father because he came to work for her, uh, for her grandfather. So, so, so he sort of mar- married the he married the boss's granddaughter, I guess you could say. <laughs> and um, so because of my uh great grandfather's success we were quite quite wealthy and lived a very comfortable life and uh- partic- in this town we we my family owned uh, uh many homes uh, it was typical kind of a typical european factory town in that the the factory owned a lot of the homes that the that the workers lived in and uh my family owned the post office and uh Donated uh, fields for the for the town soccer team to the to the town and and parks and so forth, and there was even a park there that was uh, that had my name on it that I discovered much much later that uh, on the day that I was born my uncle my great uncle I should say uh, dedicated the town to uh, the the park to me that was just outside of town so we had a very nice life and. what this small matter of religion that I mentioned here. Um, I was brought up a Catholic. In fact, we had a Catholic church directly across the street. And my mother and I were both very devout Catholics and we went, to, went to church every, every Sunday. And uh, what I didn't know until much later in life was that uh, the rest of my family was Jewish. And actually, my mother came from a mixed marriage. Uh, Wasn't really a marriage. Uh, My her her father and her mother never never got married, but her father was a was a Jew, and my father was a Jew, and and, uh, so because of that, I actually had three Jewish grandparents. One Catholic uh, (laughs) grandparent. So there was this little uh, this small matter of 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 our religion, of which I was absolutely unaware. I I didn't even, in fact, I you know, as as a little kid, I didn't even know what a Jew was. And uh, then I began to hear at the dinner table uh, conversations that indicated to me that some strange things were going on. And I wasn't really even aware of what it was. But uh, on March 15, 1939 is when, when the Germans occupied, occupied Czechoslovakia and things changed tremendously. And I still didn't know anything about this religion business and all i knew was that my father left one day and uh said goodbye and it turned out that he escaped and he escaped uh south he went south uh, through hungary and uh, ended up in yugoslavia where he was arrested and uh later on a, one of the yugoslavian partisans helped him escape just be, just before his trial he was being he was going to be tried as a spy because he got caught uh, trying to learn English, uh, you trying to uh, translate the uh, 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 London newspaper uh, using a Czech English dictionary out in a, on a park bench and uh, so he escaped he escaped he eventually uh, joined the British Army, and uh, the underground uh, took him there through through Greece, through Turkey, uh, and uh, in Palestine, what was then Palestine. Uh, the British Army was forming a Czechoslovak division, and he was one of the earliest uh, volunteers to join uh, the Czechoslovak division of the British Army. (coughs) And what was happening to our family was that one by one, uh, members of our family uh, kept disappearing, and I had no idea why. And after a few months, the only people who were remaining were my mother, my great-grandfather, and I. And we were still in the same location where we were in our apartment until uh, until a, the Nazis brought in a man from uh, from the Sudetenland uh, to take take over our factory. We got thrown out of our apartment. We uh, were able to take only what we could carry. And we were taken in by a, by a, a farmer couple, a couple named Tuma. And uh, that's where we went to live. And uh, my mother, who was a fine lady who had been brought up in the finest schools and always had been surrounded by servants and maids and so forth uh became a farmhand and worked seven days a week in the fields while uh my great-grandfather and i were uh, became each other's best friends so i was a at that point i was a, about four and a half five years old and he was 82 and uh People must have gotten a kick out of seeing the two of us walking around the village holding hands. And uh, but I was I was his only friend, and he was my only friend at that point. This is how my mother and I looked uh, when we were uh, living on the farm. This is this is approximately 19, 1942. This photograph. So next thing that happened was. One of the more traumatic experiences of my life up to that point was that my great-grandfather, whom I called Jerecek, uh one day I came, I, I came into the kitchen in the morning and I saw Jedesekk standing there, uh, wearing his the, the usual three-piece suit that he wore everywhere we went, including when we went to feed the pigs on, <laughs> on the farm, uh, and had a suitcase. And a strange-looking yellow star on his on his uh, suit. I had no idea what that was. I had only seen uh, sheriffs wear stars like that in, in American movies. And uh, he said goodbye, and he told me he was going on vacation for a short time, and that he'd, he'd be back in uh, in a few weeks. And of course, that didn't happen. Uh, he was taken away to uh, Terezin, uh, which is the which was the Czech concentration camp. From there, he was taken to Treblinka, where, where he was gassed. Um, I'd like to read you a, just a, a very short piece from the book about that, about that experience. The following spring came the most devastating moment of my young life. The morning of April 21, 1942, I came into the farm kitchen for breakfast. To my great surprise, I found Yericek standing there, dressed in his gray suit and wearing a gray overcoat with a six-pointed yellow star with the strange word "Jude," German for Jew, at its center sewn to his lapel. Next to him on the floor stood a suitcase. Where are you going, Gerichko, I asked. I have to go away for a little while, he lied. But don't worry, I'll see you again soon. His he... Mother, Mrs. Tumová, and I climbed aboard a wagon pulled by two horses, and Mr. Tuma drove us to the railroad station on the other side of town. Mother and I stood on the platform with Jereček, awaiting a train to Prague. To this day, Jereček's last word to Mother echo in my head and touched my soul. You take care of Otyik, which was my nickname, and yourself. I'm sure, that, I'm sure that something will be left here when it's over, and you'll be able to start all over again. The train carried him to Prague, where he and hundreds of other prisoners were assembled in the exposition hall of the trade fair uh, grounds near Stromovka. The next day, he and hundreds of Jews, each carrying one one or two suitcases, were marched through the streets of Prague to another train station. There they were squeezed into cattle cars of a train that made a slow three-hour trip to the concentration camp in Terezin known as Derezinstadt to Germans, Terezin is a historic fortress 60 kilometers north of Prague, named after Empress Maria Theresa. In late 1941, the Nazis moved out the moved out, moved out the town's citizens and converted it to a ghetto for Czech Jews. The fortress with barracks built to accommodate 5000 people became a prison for 50,000 50, inmates. It was important in the Nazis' Holocaust strategy in that they used it as a model ghetto to be shown to the International Red Cross as an example of German kindness to Jews. For the purpose of this show, show and tell, for the world, the inmates had their own symphony orchestra, a theater, and art studios for the children. As soon as the Red Cross observers would leave the camp, the musicians, actors, and artists would be shipped to death camps only to be replaced by other talented prisoners for the next show, next show and tell. In reality, Terezin was but a stopover on the way to annihilation. Most inmates were sent sent on to the ovens of Auschwitz-Birkenau, while others were transported to Treblinka. Coincidentally, Gericek arrived in Terezin at about the same time, and perhaps even on the same transport, as the three Jewish grandparents of future U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, whose Czech background and ethnicity stories are nearly identical to mine. Two of her grandparents died there from under, uh, undetermined causes, and the other per- perished at Auschwitz. Mother's, mother received word from a friend that Jedicek's health was good and that he was being helped by friends during his short stay in Terezin. But on October 15, 1942, the Germans put him on a transport to Treblinka, a death camp located in Poland, north of Warsaw. The head of the camp was Franz Stangl, an Austrian police officer who became a Nazi extermination expert, having been credited with the gassing of 100,000 people at the Sobibor camp before assuming his duties as Treblinka commander. After the war, he would be tried by a German court, but would manage to escape to Syria and then to Brazil. He would be caught and extradited in 1967, dying in prison in Dusseldorf five five years later. Before Treblinka was closed in 1943, following a revolt by the inmates, it is estimated that 700,000 to 1 million people were put to death in the gas chambers. One of the few survivors of of the Treblinka revolt was a Czech named Richard Glaser. He wrote that immediately upon arrival by transport, all but strong young men, who could be used as laborers in the camp were ordered to strip and, and that as soon as their baggage and clothing were taken away, they were shot. It is quite certain that my elderly great-grandfather, my beloved Jedacek, was murdered on October 17, 1942 and that the lightest of the ashes of his burned body rose to the sky on that fateful night. So that that was the story of my great-grandfather. Of course... I had no idea, and none of us had any idea what had happened to him. We finally found all this out after the war, and uh, so during the war what happened, there were, there were many things that happened. Uh, my mother kept from me any information about, uh, about the, my ethnicity. And uh, every time I would ask a question about why certain things were happening, why we were being deprived of food, why I was not allowed to go to school, uh, the party line I was always given was, "It's because your father is fighting against the Germans." Uh, nothing said about the about the uh, fact that I had three Jewish grandchildren, uh, grandchildren grandparents, and uh, therefore, by the Nuremberg Laws, by by the Nazi formula, I was considered a Jew, even though I considered myself a Catholic. And um, I actually, I was very proud of the fact that, uh, that uh, I was suffering because my father was fighting against the Germans. So I, you know, I took it as a point of pride, and uh, uh, it wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been. And my mother also went to was taken to racial court. They tried to prove that uh, that she was a Jew. She, uh, we actually, three on three different occasions, she and I were packed to, uh, to be to be taken on a transport, uh, and three times uh, no one ever came for us, and uh, nothing ever happened for some strange reason. It's uh, remained a mystery uh, to my mother uh, through, for for the rest of her life why we were never taken away. However, uh, toward the, the end of the war, with about a year to go in the war, uh, mother was finally taken away uh, to a slave labor camp, which was for uh, Christian wives of, of Jewish men, and uh, where they manufactured windshields for, for German airplanes. And knowing that the Nazis considered me a Jew, she hid me out uh, on a farm, and I, stay, I stayed hidden uh, for, the, for the rest of the war. Uh, my father's war. My, as I mentioned, he uh, he joined the uh, Czechoslovak division of the British Army, and he actually fought for five and a half years. And uh, he fought in North Africa under under uh, uh, Montgomery, and uh, later on he was at Dunkirk, he was in, in D-Day, and he was eventually attached to uh, Patton's uh, Second Army, and which came into which which came to the west uh, on the west side of Czechoslovakia where they were stopped uh, because of an agreement that Eisenhower had made with a with a Soviet marshal they were not allowed to go any farther to, to liberate us while we were waiting for the Red Army to come down from Berlin to liberate us because that was the agreement that uh, general Eisenhower had made which actually cost the Czechs and Slovaks forty one years of freedom because of that uh, that decision so uh, the Prague uprising took place in in May 1945 just before just before the Russians came uh, to liberate us and uh, I had my own moment which uh, actually the the publisher chose to put on the if you've seen the cover of the book it says a true story of a man who at the age of 9 shot a nazi and I'll read you that short uh, short piece from the book During that first week of May 1945, retreating German occupiers, soldiers and civilians, men, women, and children, filled every north and westbound road out of Prague, hoping to be captured by civilized Americans rather than the brutal Soviets. Although our village of Kvecice was two kilometers from the highway between Prague and the city of Njelnik, German soldiers and workers had been passing through for several days on their way north. A few found temporary lodging before continuing. Injured soldiers fleeing, from the, fleeing the front were treated in a makeshift infirmary in the elementary school. Two boys I met when I ventured out of the dark corner room in which I had been hiding told me that some Wehrmacht deserters had taken refuge in the outbuildings of the Wawr estate where we were living. Like most Czechs, I found it difficult to believe that our hated oppressors were really running away. Now my new friends and I decided to observe the exodus. We exited the estate surrounding the castle, a one-time residence of of the region's major landowner, but now a dormitory for farm workers, through a rear, rear gate, and we walked out to the highway. The Nazis were gone by the time we arrived, but wanting to be unarmed when captured, the soldiers had been throwing away their military equipment along the way. In the ditch by the road, we found a treasure trove. There were gas masks, bayonets, helmets, binoculars, clips with bullets, and guns. I picked up a black Walter putt pistol. It was heavy and cold, but it gave me an unexpected jolt of power. I'm going to shoot a German, I announced to my companions, matter-of-factly as I stuck the loaded pistol inside my belt. I remembered the boy's comment about Germans hiding inside the estate courtyard and thus in a flight of fancy, and without consideration of the consequences, I knew my target. We headed back to the village, each of us with his favorite piece of loot. Along the way, the boys laughed at my bravado and teased me about having read too many Karamai, cowboy, and Indian novels. We returned to the castle, which is what the, the, that's what the place was called, where we were staying, by climbing over a wall surrounding the large estate. Once inside, we sneaked into the woods and to the edge of the courtyard. We crawled through thick brush to watch several men and women hit, load boxes onto two gray trucks. A short distance away from us, a tall, blonde Aryan A poster child for a Nazi propaganda billboard was carrying a small table through a door and toward a truck. The man was dressed in dark trousers and leather boots, was hatless and wore a white undershirt and dark green suspenders. The boy named Pepik pulled his newly obtained gas mask away from his face. Well, are you going to do it, he whispered. I stared at him for a long moment, taking his dare as a signal that the man was one of the escaping Germans and wondering if I had the courage to back up my boast. Finally, I swallowed hard and carefully drew the walter from my belt. Getting on my feet, cocking the pistol and assuming a two-handed pose I had seen in American cowboy movies before the war, I aimed at the blond haired man's chest. I squeezed the trigger. Bam! The noise was ear-shattering. The pistol recoiled and flew out of my hand, and I was propelled into the bushes. You got him, screamed Pepe. I crawled out of the brush and looked. The man was lying on the ground while a woman was screaming in German from the doorway. Leaving the gun behind, I took off running as fast as I could toward the castle, while my two companions scattered in different directions. I hid behind the brick building which had been my hideaway and waited for what seemed like hours with my heart pounding wildly. Amazingly, no one had followed. After an initial crush of fear, I experienced an adrenaline rush unlike any I had ever felt before or since. I killed a German, I screamed silently. I killed a German. I did not know if I had really killed a man, but I, had hoped that I, but I hoped that I had. In that splendid moment, I felt as if I had single-handedly won the war. For most of my young life, I had been running and hiding. Now finally I had struck back. I had taken revenge for everything the Nazis had done, for taking my family from me, for stealing our home and all our possessions, for forcing me to hide like an animal, for desecrating my beloved Czechoslovakia. I was nine years old. So that was the end of the war. We uh, reunited. My father came back. My mother came back. And the three of us were, were reunited, obviously, very, very happily. The problem then was we waited and waited for others to come back, and no one ever came. And uh, it turned out, as we look back, and, and actually we're still we're still looking. And uh, I, when I wrote the book, oh, only uh, it was published last December. I thought the number of members of our family that we lost was 25, but we have since discovered that prob- it's probably getting close to 30 as we as we keep discovering more and more cousins and uncles and so forth who who were also lost in the Holocaust. So now uh, Czechoslovakia was free, and we put our lives back together. And my parents uh, got the factory back, of course, and we got some properties back that we owned. I went to school for the first time. Uh, I started school the last two weeks of third grade was, was the first time I, I went to a, a, to a formal school. And the problem was that the communists were slowly gaining ground. They hadn't quite taken over the government yet at that point, but they were slowly gaining ground. And uh, my father was in trouble with them uh, for a number of reasons. One, because he fought with the Western allies, and they considered uh, all Czechs and Slovaks who had fought in the, in the West to be enemies of the Communist Party. And, of course, we were, we were considered bourgeois because we were, we were wealthy, And there were various incidents, like my father refusing to fly the Soviet flag on on holidays and things of that sort. And my father and mother both were blacklisted by the Communist Party. And then in February 1948, the Communists actually took over the government, and uh, we escaped uh, two weeks after the the takeover. And uh, we escaped only with those things that we could carry, because we had to walk across the border. Uh, in the western part of the country, and uh, we walked uh, for about three and a half hours through, through a forest until we came to the uh, U.S. zone of Germany, and we, we were met there by a couple of uh, American soldiers, and uh, we ended up in, uh, in refugee camps for about the next year and a half, our total assets were the three suitcases that we carried out and one bundle of blankets that I carried that had some jewelry inside. And we were in these displaced, three different displaced persons camp until we received our visas to come to the U.S. This picture is our first night in America. These are our. Uh, if you look left to right, our sponsors were a family named Eisner. They were old friends of my my parents who had actually escaped uh, in 1939, just before just before Hitler came. They were, they were originally Czech and they had two sons, uh, Steve, Steve and Tommy. And left to right, that's Mr. Eisner, and then that's my mother, and I'm standing in the background. That's Mrs. Eisner, and that's Stephen. And Tommy, my father, is not in the picture because he took the picture. And uh, one of the first things that happened was as soon as we arrived, my father said to me, you will forget everything that happened to you on the other side of the Atlantic. You're going to become a 100% assimilated American as quickly as you possibly can. You're going to lose your accent. I knew two words when we came. Thank you. And (laughs) so... But he ordered me that, and my father was a European father, and you didn't talk back to European fathers. And I saluted smartly and said, "Yes, sir." And uh, not only did I was I for, was I told to leave all my memories behind, but I was also even even left my name behind. My original name was uh, my first name was Ota, my middle name was Karel. So they flipped the two names around, translated Carl to Charles, and made my what had been my first name my, uh, my middle name. So that's how I ended up with the name that I now have and have had since officially since I was naturalized as a, as a citizen. And uh, Sink or Swim in North Carolina uh, was uh, two weeks after we came to the U.S. As I mentioned, I knew two words of English. Tommy, the, the older boy in the picture, uh, was going to a, a summer camp for New York kids in North Carolina, outside of Asheville, as a counselor, and uh, the adults, the Eisners and my parents, decided that I should go with him as a camper. Well, you can imagine this just scared the living hell out of me because I, I couldn't I couldn't communicate with the other kids, and but it was fantastic. I, I actually came back with a Southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> When we arrived at the, at the when we arrived in the, at the train station in New York, uh, my both my parents and the Eisners were actually just just couldn't believe how what terrible English I spoke when I when I when I got back, and uh, but it was it was a great experience. I even acted in a couple of a uh, couple of plays. I had absolutely no idea what I was singing, but uh, you know I was getting assimilated, and so the goal was to be. Uh, number one, uh, uh, n- number one goal was to be an all-American boy in every possible way. I uh, learned American sports that I before that I, I had always been a pretty decent athlete. But I played European sports. I played soccer. I played hockey. I skied. I played tennis. But I had never seen a baseball game. I didn't know what basketball was. But I fell in love with basketball, particularly, and all other sports, and it became quite important in my life because I earned a scholarship to college playing basketball. And um I also met a beautiful girl in high school to whom I've now been married fifty three years and who's sitting in the next to Lastro in in a red jacket <laughs> and uh just as young as she was in this picture. <laughs> um then the I I'm, I'm skipping all the things that I did and of course went you know, went to went to university. I got a Couple of engineering degrees, and eventually uh, we uh, we ended up here. We went to the West Coast, and I went to Oklahoma State University. And then we went out to the West Coast uh, as my first job after both of us graduated from college. And we came back. We came east. We actually lived in, in Baltimore for a little while. And uh, then we discovered the town that's been our that's been our home for since 1963, Annapolis. We fell in love with Annapolis, and that's where we've been since. I went there originally to teach at the Naval Academy, and then got bitten by the entrepreneurial bug and started a couple software companies, and then was at the University of Maryland, and also, and also in the venture capital business for a while. But uh, uh, the the most most traumatic thing that happened to me uh was in nineteen eighty eight while we were living in Annapolis uh, my father passed away and uh as a consequence of the war, my father had malaria uh, during the war when he was when he was serving in the in the desert in africa and as a result of the ma- malaria uh he had heart problems uh, pretty much throughout throughout his life and although he was extremely active but uh we took him to Houston for an open heart operation, and he passed away during the during the operation. And but for me, uh, it was it was more than just the death of my my father, whom I loved uh, very much. It was also uh, it was kind of a turning point for me for for a couple of reasons. One, I realized that that was the first death of a family member that where I had actually was a, a actually able to celebrate. Uh, that person 's life where I was actually able to go to a funeral of someone in my family, everyone else had died during the holocaust or you know in, in deaths of that type that was one. The other thing was when my father died, and as I mentioned, my father was jewish, but he was uh, he was totally secular he, he never went to synagogue or or anything else uh, so and we never discussed religion at home, but when he died, I said. I said to myself now what are we going to do what what kind of a service are we going to have so I and we hadn't we hadn't really talked to anybody our friends or anyone else about the Jewish side of our of our family and uh, I don't know if part of it was just denial or or whatever it might have been but at that point I said you know what how are we going to do this thing so I consulted with my mother, and she was okay with it and i th- this was in Morristown, New Jersey, where my parents lived and um, I went into the yellow pages and i found a, I found a rabbi in the yellow pages and uh, had the rabbi officiate the, the the service for my father and One of the things I wondered was what are our friends going to think think now now that they find out that my father is jewish and to my utter amazement. They absolutely couldn't give a damn. <laughs> Nobody cared. Nobody ever mentioned it. Nothing ever changed. And uh, this started with the. So this started kind of a guilt trip for me, and uh, in that I hadn't really honored uh, the the members of my family, and I hadn't really recognized my own ethnicity. And uh, so, as a result of that, I, you know, I I really started. Uh, started thinking completely differently from the way i had I had thought until then then uh, a major moment in nineteen eighty nine i hadn 't really connected very much of it with my with my native country and didn 't really give it a whole lot of thought because it was you know it was a communist country and and uh, I had no desire to go back or anything else but then the Velvet Revolution happened in November 1989, uh, soon after the, the Berlin Wall came down, came the Velvet Revolution, and the communist government and, the Czech, and the Czech, what was then Czechoslovakia was overthrown after 41 years of communism. And I began reconnecting with, with my homeland. And uh, we went through, I could... Spend the evening here telling you some stories that are funny and some that are not about the way we got our, some of our properties back. We got the factory back, and we got the uh, uh, we got an uh, office building in Prague back, and some restitution for some of the some of the other homes that we owned, and so forth. Mainly, it was a, it wasn't a it wasn't being done for economic reasons. It was being done mainly out of principle. They stole all this from us. So I was going to get it back, and actually, the office building turn out to be a pretty good economic uh, deal as well so but that 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 just kind of happened by accident but uh, I say here suing the communist party uh, I will just tell you about that and that is all of the properties that we owned were nationalized by the Czechoslovak government and for that the the new the new government of Czechoslovakia under president Václav Havel had a restitution process, so we went through the legal, legal process. However, we owned the building in which we lived in Prague after the war, uh, which was built by my grandfather and his brother, uh, had, at that time was an apartment building. But while we were living there, the communists came in and made two floors of that building their headquarters for that region. And uh, after we escaped, they took over the entire building, and that building was their headquarters. I couldn't get that property back because it hadn't been nationalized, because it had been taken by the by the Communist Party. So I had to sue the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia. And we actually, I'll, I'll spare you the long, shaggy dog story, but we actually settled on the courthouse steps, and uh, I was the landlord of the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia for, uh, for two years. <laughs> so... What's that, oh yeah, yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, the trouble is there were other there were other people renting other parts of the building, so it couldn't just shut everything off oh yeah, oh absolutely there there was and is in fact the the communist party is actually running a uh, running a candidate in this year's presidential election, they're they're very strong in the rural areas. They're, they're, you know, a lot of the people who live in the villages, uh, they never had it so good as they had it under the communists. Today, they have to work and they have to compete and all that. And they don't like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well so what what happened then was uh, interestingly uh you know uh, things started coming back to me as I as I as I mentioned earlier I I had really th- thought that I had driven all of these old, old memories out of my mind and uh really didn't give much thought people I work with and people people I knew I never talked to them uh about about my experiences but Suddenly, after the, after nineteen eighty nine, after the Velvet Revolution, there seemed to be a lot of interest uh, in in the U S. in this little country in the in the middle of Europe. And people, when they knew that I had been born there, they started asking me questions, and I started telling them stories, and all these little stories started to come out. And uh, we also started going back. We were going back to recover our property. And also, I was going back. I was giving workshops for managers of newly privatized companies there. And uh, I met up with my boyhood friend. Uh, he and I he hadn't seen each other in 41 years. His name is Vladya Svoboda. And Vladya one day, over a beer in Prague, came up with this great idea. He said, uh, why don't you and I write a book? He said, we about two boys who were best friends, and then uh the, we each one of us took a different road uh One went to America where he had the freedom to become whatever he wanted to be, and he became successful, and the other one had to stay behind and because his family and he didn't join the didn't join the party, they were restricted as to what they could do and this is what became of them and then eventually these two friends came back together well. There were a number of reasons I didn't want to do that. I, I, number, number one, he was going to write in Czech and I was going to write in English. Yeah. And that, so there was a little logistical problem. Number two, he was retiring and uh, going to move. He and his wife were moving to the mountains, to this beautiful 300-year-old home that they had inherited. And I was working 100-hour weeks. And so trying to find out how I could find time. But I couldn't just say no to a friend. But we, I had a friend uh, who had actually interviewed me. And uh, for a, for a Czech newspaper, who's an American, his name was Alan Levy, and uh, Alan lived in Prague and uh, wrote for an English language newspaper there. Plus, he was a very well known uh, author, and uh, he, he he received the equivalent of the the European equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize for the last book he wrote before he passed away. But uh, I said to Vladya, I said, "Well, let's ask an expert." What he, what he would think about, uh, about our writing this book. So Sue and I went to Prague, and um, we, had to, we invited Alan Levy to lunch at a French restaurant, and uh, Vladya and his wife were there, and Alan spoke pretty good, pretty good Czech, and uh, so I said to Vladya, so Vladya tell, tell Alan uh, about the idea for this book. So Vladya tells him, tells him the whole thing, and Alan is on his dessert, and he wipes the chocolate off his off his mouth and he says it 's a wonderful story he says i 'm sure your families will enjoy it <laughs> and he killed the whole idea with that one with that one sentence, and I was very grateful because i didn 't want to do it, <laughs> but eventually, I decided to do to to go it on my own because of, to do to do it with with vladya would just didn 't make much sense but I decided to do it on my own for, for a number of reasons. One, because uh, I was discovering that young people really didn't, knew nothing about World War II, very little about the Holocaust. And with all the Holocaust deniers out there, I just figured I had to be one of the people uh, who, who would act as, as witnesses and, and, to, and to tell the story. So that's what I decided to do. I had always uh, always been a writer. Uh, on the side, even while I was running a software company or uh, at the University of Maryland, or I, I, I was a columnist for the late Baltimore News American, which some of you may remember, <laughs> for the Annapolis Capitol and Washington Business Journal and some others. So it's always been a, it had always been a hobby. It had never been a full-time a uh, full full time proposition as it is it is as it is now, and I took a bunch of courses and I joined a writer 's group and uh, I started writing all these little vignettes, and eventually I learned how to connect them into some uh, some continuum and uh, Then I spent eighteen months looking for an agent because I discovered that uh, in order to get published by one of the big publishers, you had to have an agent and uh, i found uh, I was lucky I got one of the top agents in the country. And uh, she was a tremendous help to me for several months. Uh, really helped me focus the book. And then she kind of disappeared, stopped communicating with me. And it turned out that she was having all sorts of uh, personal problems. So I ended up having to fire my agent. Actually, that makes makes me a hero among my writer friends around here in Maryland. I'm the only I'm the only writer that any any of them know who's ever fired an agent. It always it usually works the other way. <laughs> so now I didn't have an agent so what do I do next so I had a friend who had written a book and she had an agent up in Boston and introduced me to her but she didn't do uh, she didn't represent authors who wrote books in my genre but she was a tremendous help to me she said to me you know a lot of people like you not a lot of people some, some people like you who have written books about their lives uh, and who came from other countries have gone back to their native countries had the books translated or translated them themselves into their native language and uh, published them there and if they did well there the american publishers were all over them So why don't you do that? I said, oh, okay, that's a great idea, except I knew absolutely nobody in publishing in the Czech Republic. So I went on the Internet. I found the five largest publishers in the Czech Republic. I just sent them cold query letters, and number two through five never responded, but number one got back to me immediately and said, this is right in our sweet spot. Let's do it. Uh, We flew to Prague, signed a book deal, and uh, we... uh, had the book translated, and uh, we had a very successful book launch this is This is what the Czech book looks like the title the title is almost the same it's cesta domu which means a uh, long journey home it It just doesn't have the word Prague as the English version has in the title so we had a we we had the uh book uh launch in April of twenty eleven and then i found a publisher uh abbott press in the in the u s abbott press is a is a is a small medium sized publisher located in uh, bloomington indiana and uh the book uh, uh for for any of you who are interested in writing a book, I, I've I've learned a lot of things, but one of the things I learned was uh, when a book should be published and when it shouldn't be published. I kept pushing and pushing to for them to get the book out before Christmas, because that's when most that's when books sell the most. So guess when the book came out, December 27th of last year. <laughs> so not only did we miss the Christmas rush, but 5 days later the book was a year old by by publishing standards it, it was a 20, it was a 2011 rather than a 2012 book which made me ineligible for some of the some of the awards that are out there and, and all this stuff but you know next the next time I'll know and I am working on two more books and uh, the, this this book has had some i 've been lucky with some recognition it 's gotten the uh, writer 's digest mark of quality for for literary quality and and uh, it, uh, it it was a runner up at the Los Angeles Book Fair for best book of the year and uh, and it got my honorable mention for uh, indie, indie Book Awards, uh, Indie, indie Books being uh, the independent publishers' uh, books. So there you have it. And uh, I will be happy to answer any questions or discuss anything that you would like. Yeah? You mentioned about not having any knowledge of your Jewish family background. Yes. So how did that come out? When did that come out? You know, I, I'm not really Sure. I've been asked that question before. Oh, I'm sorry. The question was: I I said that I had no knowledge of being Jewish, of of the Jewish side of my family, when I was a kid. So how did it how did it eventually come out? And intellectually, I must have known. I mean, I was no dummy. You know, I I have a Ph.D. in engineering. I I know I, I must have figured it out, but somehow I. Never put things together or never thought they were important, or maybe I just denied it because I didn't want to, you know, thinking that I, I might be, people might be prejudiced against me. I don't really know. But it came, it started coming back. At the, 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 the moment, the, the kind of the magic moment, the turning point was when my father passed away. You know, that, that, that's when it really began. for, for telling us when you know all started Oh, I'm going to repeat that. <laughs> 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 Mainly so my wife can hear it. <laughs> I must have found a fountain of youth because I'm young so young looking. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I think I think uh, being active, you know, still being active Playing golf, hiking, skiing, and right. kayaking, and all that yeah. good stuff that I still do—that helps a lot. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Your no, my mother passed away in 2006, and and actually that that, that incident of uh, of shooting the shooting the Nazi, I never told my father about it. I, I never talked to anybody about it. But I eventually did tell my mother about two years before she died. And I was really, because I was, I was at that point, I was already uh, researching my memoir, you know, so I figured I had to talk about everything, everything that I knew. So I told my mother, and I was, I was extremely uh, anxious about how she would react. So when I told her the story, she looked at me, she said, you did good. Uh-huh. <laughs> I think he was pretty typical in that of, of soldiers. He told me on mostly the funny stuff that happened. You know, lots of lots of funny stories about other soldiers, how they screwed up or got drunk. You know, went into combat after drinking this kind of stuff, and but very little about uh, you know the more serious things. I actually had to research quite a bit about his unit and uh, where they were and what they did for the book, because he didn't tell me those things. Uh, Have I ever met her? No. I, um, I actually asked Madeline Albright, uh, through a mutual friend, if she would write the foreword for this book. And uh, she stonewalled me, and uh, I found out later that she was working on her book at the same, at that time this was this was about September of last year that uh, that I asked her i sent I sent her a copy of the Czech language book and asked her if she would do that and I said, you know if you can't do a forward, can you at least give me a quote that i that I can have here because I have quotes by other people including the Czech ambassador and others and uh, she wouldn't she didn't even respond so through this Through a mutual friend, I found out that uh, she apparently considered my book to be a competitor and that she wasn't going to help me. And number two, another, another friend who knows her well said to me, Madeline never does anything for free. So... It's absolutely true, and ag- actually, I have a little passage in the book about uh, we were my my partners, and when I was in the venture capital business, my partners and I were raising money, uh, and we went to see a Palestinian investor in in Northern Virginia, in Tyson's Corner, and uh, that morning, we you know when we first came in, we were making small talk and just kind of introductory stuff before we went into our pitch about raising money from the guy. And, uh, that morning in the Washington Post, they had revealed that she had just discovered the, her background and this guy, and, and the subject came up in the conversation and this guy had a big smirk on his face and he said, I bet she didn't know. And I stood up, I said, she didn't know, you know, and, and, uh, I was so, I, I was so angry at the guy and, uh. My partners later on in the car wanted to know what that was all about, and I had to explain it to them. But it's absolutely true. There were many of us, there were hundreds, you know, maybe thousands, I don't know. Yeah. I think Czechoslovakia might have I I think there was another country another post communist country that had a similar restitution process. But it was kind of interesting in that we started this process. We had, we had a friend uh we became friends with a lady at the Czechoslovak embassy in Washington who was uh uh, who came here? Who was a? Uh, for, she was actually, she had been the interpreter for President Havel's wife when, when they made their victorious tour of the United States, and she when she told us about the restitution law just having been passed by Parliament in Czechoslovakia, she introduced us to a, uh, to a lawyer who was a friend of hers. So we started working through the process, and uh, about four months into this. Uh, I get a phone call from her saying it looks like you 're in you 've got a problem because the Parliament just fought, passed another law, and the law is that number in order to be eligible for restitution, number one, you must be a citizen of Czechoslovakia, and number two, you must be a permanent resident of Czechoslovakia so he said well that 's it. About a month later, I get another phone call from uh, the visa head of the visa section at the Czechoslovak Embassy saying... We got good news for you. You're a citizen of Czechoslovakia. <laughs> Apparently, I had, we had never lost our citizenship. So, because of that, on that note, we were we were eligible. the The other part was a piece of cake. the The residency part. We put uh, we had our names on 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 doorbells at, at a friend's apartment building, and that made us permanent residents of, <laughs> of Czechoslovakia. None of the above. <laughs> <are> <laughs> I'm a I'm a human being. <laughs> I'm a I'm a human being. I have my own religion. I, I don't I, I don't practice any, any organized religion. I don't go to church or no, it has nothing to do with organized religion. Take for example Albert Einstein. he was Jewish. Yeah. I know what you're saying. I know. I don't speak about the religion. you don't have to. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I know exactly what you're saying, and uh, I, I, I didn't mean to just slough it off. And I have to tell you that I have... I, I've had a total different, totally different feeling toward Jewish people since, you know, since I started realizing these things. I, I actually found... Uh, that, for example, I, I'm a I'm a huge sports fan, and uh, and when I see a, a team playing, I look at the names. If I see a name that looks Jewish, I root for the guy. <laughs> it just comes naturally. I don't know, you know. So, I I don't really know how else to answer it. I, and when I was in Israel, I've been to Israel twice, and I found that. In Israel, I suddenly found that I had a bond with the people there because when i when they asked me about my my story, they seem to identify with with my story much more than Americans, you know and uh, yeah <laughs> not a bad idea <laughs> to translate it into Hebrew <laughs> Anyone? Else? Yes. A difference that many people don't realize unless you actually are Jewish is that unlike other religions, which where to say you're Christian is just a religious affiliation, but if you say you're Jewish, uh many Jews have no religion at all, but they are part of a tribe. True. And you know, so you're relatives. Yes. Yes. Although I have to tell you, I made a mistake. I uh, when I was when I wrote the book and my manuscript, I had a a friend who was a professional editor. She she edited the book for me, and she's Jewish. And I had in there something about, and I used the word race. She just about jumped down my throat. And says Jews are not a race. <laughs> Anything else? Okay, if anyone any of you are thank you.